We are concluding our study tonight in 2 Timothy. So if you'll go ahead and turn your Bibles to 2 Timothy chapter 4. Again, this is Paul's last letter. It's just before he's executed by the Roman Empire. And I have to say, personally, I've been very thankful for the opportunity I've had these last couple of months to study through and teach through this letter. It's the first time I've taught through 2 Timothy. I've read it a number of times, but you always learn more when you're studying and preparing to teach. This has great impact in my life personally. It's such an encouraging letter to those that are in the ministry uh, to remain faithful in that ministry, despite the opposition and difficulties that are inevitably going to come. It also reminds us, as ministers of the gospel, of what our primary duties are, to minister the word of God, to study, teach, model, and hold fast to that truth that has been passed down to us from faithful men. Timothy talks about that in chapter 2. Things which you've heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, these entrust to faithful men who will in turn be able to teach others. That's how the gospel has come down to us, and we want to be faithful to continue to pass that down to the next generation. Now, you could look at the passage that we're looking at tonight, it's verses 9 through 22, and say, gosh, it doesn't seem like there's a lot there. It's a lot of personal names, a lot of place names, a few closing greetings, and then a benediction. Well, I hope by the end of the night that you'll look at this a little differently. I certainly did as, as I studied and prepared. I've entitled our lesson tonight, The Apostle Paul's Final Arrangements. We hear those words, and what I usually think of when I hear those words is somebody who's about to die. They know they're about to die, and they have some time left, though, to get their affairs in order. That's what the situation that Paul is in. He's given Timothy, and as I said, by extension, all ministers of the gospel, a series of charges in this letter to stay faithful in the ministry. He has set a great example in that, personally. One of the things for me, the great privilege to study the letters of Paul and then to teach them, you grow in your appreciation for Paul himself. Anybody that can say, imitate me as I imitate Christ, you've got to have a lot of respect for. And just the amount of things that he went through, the amount of suffering that he went through as the apostle to the Gentiles, I've just grown in my appreciation for him. And I've grown even through this letter tonight and how he worked just to the very end. I think that will become more clear as we look at the passage. But Paul himself has fought the good fight. He has finished the course. He has kept the faith. He knows that he's about to be executed by the Roman Empire, but he faces that possibility with great peace and confidence and strength. Why? Because for Paul, death has no sting. He knows that death, in fact, is the very means by which he will see the Lord and receive the crown of life that's laid up for him in heaven. Even as death is on his very doorstep, however, he has some things that he needs to do. He has some affairs that he needs to put in order. He needs to brief Timothy on where his fellow gospel workers are across the empire. And I want to take just a minute for us to think about the way that Paul mentored other workers in the gospel and the impact that he had even through those other workers. Luke, if you'll throw that first slide up on the, store, on the screen. This is from Nelson's complete book of Bible maps and charts. And it just shows the impact that Paul had there on different individuals. Of course, Barnabas was the guy that he worked with on his first missionary journey. 
and John Mark. They ended up splitting over John Mark. We, John Mark actually appears in our passage tonight. He worked with Priscilla and Aquila, who in turn had impact on Apollos, and who in turn had impact in all the region of Achaia. Antioch was the church from which Paul was sent on his three missionary journeys. He'd always come back to that church and report to them. He worked with Titus on the island of Crete. He worked with Timothy. Timothy was his closest associate. He wrote two letters to him. Again, he charged him to entrust the truth to faithful men who in turn would teach others. A big part of Paul's ministry was in the city of Ephesus. He spent more time in the city of Ephesus than he did in any other location about three years. I'm going to show you a map in just a minute that shows how central and critical the city of Ephesus was to the spread of the gospel across the Roman Empire. You remember that the Apostle John also ministered in Ephesus before he was exiled to Patmos. And the churches, the seven churches in the book of Revelation, are all centered right around the city of Ephesus. That just gives you an idea of Paul's reach, uh, the, the reach of ministry that Paul had through these fellow gospel workers. And we're going to see that some of these are mentioned in our um, passage tonight. This is a map, and again, because there are so many place names in our passage tonight, I wanted to put this up there. You have studied maps of the Bible before, but it's just helpful to know where you are uh, and where Paul is as he writes this letter and where the other locations are that he mentions. He, of course, is in Rome. His second imprisonment in Rome, there's two different ones. The end of Acts records his house arrest in Rome. This time he's in a dark dungeons, very different from his first imprisonment. He was hopeful of his release in his first imprisonment. He knows he's going to be executed in his second. He's writing to Timothy, who was at Ephesus. Luke, this is not clicking. Can you hit that one for me? Ephesus, again, is in the center of the Roman Empire, and you can see, again, the influence and the, the important base of operations it would have been for Paul's ministry. He talks about one of his gospel workers, one of his fellow workers, uh, forsaking him and going to Thessalonica. That's the other location. Galatia, he sent a worker there. Remember, that's where the, that was the region, the Roman province, of Paul's first missionary work. And there were churches that were established in Derby and Lystra and Pisidian Antioch. Troas, he talks about wanting Timothy in our passage tonight to pick up his cloak in the books that he left with Carpus in Troas. He knows that Timothy is going to have to pass through Troas on his way to Rome. He left some stuff there, and he wants Timothy to pick it up for him. He's going to send Tychicus from Rome to Ephesus because Timothy and John Mark are leaving Ephesus and coming to Rome, and they need somebody there to keep an eye on things while he's gone. And then one place, I'm sorry, one place that I left out that's not labeled on this map, but he talks about sending a worker to Dalmatia. And yes, that is where the dogs come from. But it's up there on the east coast of the Adriatic Sea, kind of directly across from Italy, across the Adriatic Sea. He also mentions the city of Corinth. But what impressed me is I thought through what he says in the passage tonight and just looked at the spread across the Roman Empire that Paul was operating with. We know he was a gifted apostle. We know he was a teacher. We know he's the one by whom we get the revelation that we have about the church. 
but he was an excellent overseer of fellow gospel workers as well. And he's constantly moving guys around in this broad of an area to make sure that the churches are taken care of, to make sure that the ministry continues. And for me, it was just an interesting exercise to see that. We'll leave that map up there, and just as we read through the passage, you'll see those place names again. Second Timothy is indeed a very personal letter overall, and our text tonight shows that as much as anything. It's the final words of a great man of God who knows he's about to die, and yet who remains faithful even in the smallest details to the very end of his life. You would not think that it would be like a person like the Apostle Paul and the ministry that he had to die a death that was so lonely and separated. We're going to see that's what happens tonight, though. And he craves human fellowship. He wants Timothy to come and come quickly. So that's kind of the character of the passage that we'll be looking at tonight. If you have your outline before you, you'll see we divided up these verses into three major sections. 9 through 18 gives Paul's personal requests and instructions. 19 through 21 is mostly salutations. And then uh, verse 22 is his closing benediction. And because these verses are the way they are, we're going to do a little bit differently. I'm not going to read the whole passage first, but I'm... We're just going to read through it as if it were a letter, which it is, and make comments along the way. So let's look first at Paul's personal requests and instructions in verse 9 and 18. The very first request that he has for Timothy is, Make every effort to come to me soon. And you can hear the desire in his voice. Why? He knows he doesn't have much time left. He knows that winter is approaching. And if Timothy doesn't come before winter, he's not going to be able to come at all. Timothy, of course, was Paul's beloved child in the faith, his closest and most trusted gospel co-worker. He longs to see him before he dies, and he urges Timothy, get here as fast as you can. But his request is not prompted just by his personal attachment to Timothy, though I'm sure that was part of it. He needs him there because his other co-workers have left him. He needs to brief Timothy on their whereabouts. And he needs to brief Timothy more than anything on the circumstances in which he is leaving him, which he's about to leave him, through death. Because Timothy is going to be the main man after Paul's gone in many ways. There are going to be others, for sure, even other apostles. But the mantle of responsibility for carrying on the faith, in large part, is passing to Timothy. Now, he actually, Paul does, he actually ends up doing all three of these things in the letter itself. I think he does that because he's not sure that Timothy's going to get there. He says in verse 10, For Demas, having loved this present world, has deserted me and gone to Thessalonica. Crescens has gone to Galatia, Titus to Dalmatia. Let's look at each one of these. Demas was also a trusted co-worker during Paul's first Roman imprisonment. He's mentioned in Paul's letters to both Colossae and Philemon as being with Paul when he was under house arrest in Rome and as one who sends his greetings to the believers to which each one of those letters was written. But now he's deserted Paul. And the word that's used here is a strong word. It's in my worst time of need, he's left me. He's left me in the lurch, as it were. He's abandoned Paul in his hour of need. And the reason that's given is that he has literally fallen in love with the present age. 
in, the, in essence, demons had had enough. He'd had enough of the risk of being associated with the Apostle Paul, of the hardship that it was now to be a believer, uh, particularly during this point in the Roman Empire, and he wanted some relief from that. Now, I don't think there's enough evidence here to say for sure that he's abandoned the faith in the way that Paul has described some other people. We just don't know. We don't have enough information about that. We don't know, uh, for example, like John Mark. John Mark left on their first missionary journey, but was subsequently restored. And Paul asked for him in this letter. In Demas' case, we don't have enough information about that. But his sin was a serious one. It was one of self-interest. It was one of being afraid to be associated with Paul because of the dangers involved. It was obviously very hurtful to Paul himself. Otherwise, he wouldn't have mentioned it in this letter. Demas goes to Thessalonica. Now, we know that there's a thriving church there. there uh, that's a church that had a great reputation. We learn that as we read First and Second Thessalonians. We don't know what Demas did there. Paul mentions two other companions who are no longer with him. Crescens has gone to the Roman province of Galatia. Now, Crescens is the guy, this is the only mention of him in the New Testament. But again, he must have been a trusted co-worker for Paul to send him into the area where there were churches. There were churches that faced difficulty earlier in their history, particularly with the Judaizers. Paul, no doubt, sent him there on some ministry assignment as well as sending Titus to Dalmatia. Now, Titus may have been starting a new work there. We know that he was the one that did the primary work on the island of Crete. And Paul wrote him a letter between First and Second Timothy to give him instructions about what to do there on that, to keep that ministry going, keep those churches going. He may have been, we don't know for sure, but he may have been starting a new work in Dalmatia. It seems that both of these men were with Paul, during, and ministering to him during this imprisonment, but now he sent them out, these last two. There's no uh, censure the way there is with Demas of these two, so he's probably sent them out on ministry assignments, but what that does is leave him alone, and he want that, he's using that as an incentive for Timothy to come to him as quickly as he can. Verse 11 says, Only Luke is with me. Pick up Mark and bring him with you, for he's useful to me for service. Luke, of course, is the Luke that we know. It's Dr. Luke, a prolific writer of the New Testament. Luke's gospel is actually the longest gospel. I know it has fewer chapters than Matthew, but it's longer. It has more words. He also wrote the book of Acts as volume two, the first 30 years of the history of the church. He has been with Paul through thick and thin. He's a friend. He's a doctor. If anybody needed a personal doctor, it was the Apostle Paul. You think about all that he went through, his beatings, his stonings, being shipwrecked. We read the passages in Acts, the we passages there, where Luke is with Paul. But he has been with him throughout his ministry. He was with him during his first Roman imprisonment, and now he's with him again. He's the only one with him, in fact. And it may be that Luke wrote this letter as Paul dictated it to him. Paul tells Timothy to bring Mark with him. Of course, this is the same John Mark that was on the first missionary journey with Paul and Barnabas and who abandoned them in the middle of that first missionary journey. That created such a rift between Paul and Barnabas that Paul ended up, we remember on the second journey, Barnabas wanted to take Mark along again, and Paul said, no, I don't want this guy. 
And Paul and Barnabas split over that. Paul took Silas. Barnabas took John Mark. Mark is now in the same vicinity where Timothy is, either in or around Ephesus. And Paul wanted Timothy to pick him up and bring him with him. That's a great story of uh, restoration on John Mark's part, of being redeemed in the eyes of Paul, of being, again, useful for ministry. And I don't think he's talking here just about personal ministry to the Apostle Paul, although that could be part of it, but ministry in general, ministry in these other areas that Paul is directing and overseeing. John Mark had fully redeemed himself in Paul's eyes, and Paul was glad to have him as a co-worker again. Verse 12 says, But Tychicus I've sent to Ephesus. Ephesus... Tychicus was from Asia Minor. He was a traveling companion of Paul during the latter part of his third missionary journey. He also was one who took letters to the Ephesians and the Colossians along with Onesimus during Paul's first house arrest in Rome. Here, as I said earlier, Paul's sending Tychicus back to Ephesus so that he can keep an eye on things there and on the church there while Timothy and John Mark come to Rome. And he, no doubt, is the one that took this letter, 2 Timothy, to Timothy. Now, as Timothy prepares to come his way, Paul asks him for some personal items that he'd like for Timothy to bring with him. Verse 13 says, When you come, bring the cloak, which I left at Troas with Carpus, and the books, especially the parchments. Again, I remind you, keep in mind where Paul is. He's not under house arrest anymore. He doesn't have the liberty that he had under his first Roman imprisonment. He's in the worst kind of prison. I've heard, I listened to a sermon this week about this, and the uh, speaker spoke about the fact that the sewage system ran outside the door of this prison. Uh, This was the place that they put guys that they knew that they were going to execute. Winter is coming. It's going to get cold in there. It's already dark and wet. And Paul had this cloak. He must have recently made a trip to Troas and left the cloak there. He's asking Paul, he's asking Timothy to pick it up for him because he's going to need it against the cold and the rain. This would have been a garment that would be like a, almost like a poncho, a big round garment with a hole in the middle that somebody could just put over their head. They could wrap themselves up at night, at night with it like a sleeping bag, and it provided protection from, against the cold and the wet. He says also to bring the books, especially the parchments. These are two different kinds of written materials. The books would have been things that were written on papyrus and would have been less expensive, less important relative to those things that were written on vellum or animal skins. The parchments would have been those things, the more important works that were written on the costlier and more durable animal skins. I'd love to know what were on those books. The Bible doesn't tell us. We'd have to We'd have to suspect that copies of the Old Testament scriptures would have been there, perhaps even commentaries. There could have even been blanks that Paul would have used to write his own material on. But I think the main thing that we can take away from this is the fact that to the very end, Paul never lost his love for study. He never lost his love to know the word of God. That should serve as an inspiration to all of us. Uh, In a day and a time where we have the Word of God so available to us and so many helps as a means of understanding it. Now Paul moves to warn Timothy about Alexander the coppersmith in verses 14 to 15. He says, 
Alexander the coppersmith did me much harm. The Lord will repay him according to his deeds. Be on guard against him yourself, for he vigorously opposed our teaching. Uh, And that last word that's translated teaching is a different word than we often use for that, or at least that the New Testament often uses. It's not didaskala. It's he opposed our words. And I'll explain the significance of that in just a minute. This is probably a different Alexander from the one that was Paul had turned over to Satan in 1 Timothy chapter 1 because he's identified here by his trade. Still, he's an avowed enemy of Paul, opposing him with both deeds and words. In fact, some suspect, some commentators, that he might have been one of the accusers at Paul's trial. And this also may be the significance of his opposing Paul and his words. As Paul gave testimony before the trial, this guy could have been one who was uh, just arguing against him. But notice Paul's response to that. He has no desire for personal revenge. He leaves that to the Lord. Paul knows that he's about to be rewarded as he passes through death to heaven and be rewarded for his faithful service to the Lord. He also knows full well that God will punish those who do evil and oppose his program, and he can rest in that completely. But he does warn Timothy about this guy. He says, look, watch out for him. He's an enemy. Uh, We don't know if Alexander was in Rome. It seems likely he was there. He could have even been in Ephesus. Some people think that. But wherever he was, I'm sure Timothy knew, and Paul's just telling him to be on the lookout for him because he was such an aggressive and persistent opponent. Verses 16 through 18 say, they they describe Paul's experience at his first defense after his second arrest. And what I mean by that, when Paul refers to his first defense, he's not talking about when he was under house arrest in Rome. Let's read that, and I'll explain what I mean. Verse 16, At my first defense, no one supported me, but all deserted me. May it not be counted against them. But the Lord stood with me and strengthened me in order that through me the proclamation might be fully accomplished and that all the Gentiles might hear. And I was delivered out of the lion's mouth. The Lord will deliver me from every evil deed and will bring me safely to his heavenly kingdom. To him be the glory forever and ever. Again, this is not uh, his first offense that he references here. It's not when he was arrested the first time and put under house arrest at Rome. It's actually the first stage of his trial that he's in the midst of now. We don't have a lot of information about what the exact charges were against Paul, but we can use some imagination to think of what they could have been one maybe more clearly than the other. The first would have been Paul's involvement in the burning of Rome. You remember we talked about this earlier in our study, the fact that Nero, uh, at least much of history, thinks that he was the one that was responsible for the burning of Rome. He instigated it so that he could rebuild the city in the way that he wanted to. But he used Christians as a scapegoat for that. And some Christians were even wrapped up in animal skins and thrown into the Colosseum with the lions and eaten alive. There must have, uh, you know, Paul's defense was such that he was able to overcome that charge. It doesn't seem like there was any evidence that Paul was involved in that, anything that could be brought forth that was credible. 
But the second and even more serious charge would have been along the lines of treason against the Roman Empire in general, shown by opposition to the established customs of society. And Paul, uh, it's a false charge, but it's, uh, it's one that they could have made stick against Paul. Remember, at this point in the Roman Empire, Christianity is actually an illegal religion. Think about what would happen to somebody who came out of a pagan background or a Jewish background like Paul and believed in Christ. How would that have impacted their day-to-day living in the Roman Empire? Well, they could no longer offer sacrifices to the Roman emperor. They could no longer participate in the very immoral worship that was associated with the Greek gods. Much of Roman society was organized around these guilds, these trade guilds. So depending on what you did as an iron worker or leather worker or so forth, you had a patron god, and you got together at certain times. You can think about unions in today's uh, sense of things, although this was a little different. But you got together with your guild, and you paid homage to that god, your patron god, through various means. Well, Christians couldn't do that anymore. They didn't want to do that anymore, and it separated them from the rest of society. Paul is the leader of Christianity at this point. So he certainly is part of that separation, and he's charged accordingly. But Paul's first offense, as he stood before whatever gathering of the Roman court was there, it could have included Nero himself, his first offense was convincing enough to get him acquitted on the first charge of being involved in the burning of Rome and also get temporarily, his judgment temporarily delayed on the second charge. Now, this was despite the fact that none of Paul's friends testified on his behalf. Just as in our court system today, back then it was a normal part of Roman jurisprudence to have character witnesses, to have people that would come forth and say, look, I know this guy. I know he's no threat to the Roman Empire. I know his character. And they could just testify on behalf of that person according to their character. It was a separate from an eyewitness to any particular event. Well, Paul says that nobody did that. And you can understand why. If Christianity at this point was illegal, and if you risk death yourself to be associated with somebody like the Apostle Paul, you could see the hesitancy for people coming up and speaking forth. It would have taken real courage. But at the same time, somebody could have done that. Uh, And it's obvious that Paul was hurt by this desertion. But at the same time, he graciously forgave these people. He said, may the Lord not count against them. In the same way that Stephen, when he was stoned by the Jews, said, may the Lord not take this sin or put this sin to their account. In contrast to the desertion of his friends, the Lord stood by Paul, filling him with supernatural power that was greater than his fear and gave him the boldness to present his case. In fact, it became an opportunity for him to fulfill his original commission to proclaim the message of Christ. Paul did this all the time. We read this in the book of Acts. When he was arrested, he would stand before guys like Festus and Felix and Agrippa and Bernice. He'd use that as an opportunity to proclaim Christ to them. Well, now he's on trial. And think about 
the show trials that we have today, I think about the O.J. Simpson case, where there's this huge interest because O.J. Simpson was so well-known and because the media had broadcast this thing all over the place, there's this huge interest in the outcome of that trial. Well, believe it or not, even though Paul has been separated and, and shunt off into a holding cell before his execution, there would have been huge interests in his trial as well by the Jews by the Gentiles, because they know that there's a good possibility this guy's going to be put to death, and by the Roman officials themselves. Paul uses that as an opportunity to make his message known and to make it very clear. And in fact, if you remember, when Paul was originally commissioned and the Lord spoke through Ananias to him, he said this in Acts 9.15, Go for he's a chosen instrument of mine to bear my name before the Gentiles and kings and the sons of Israel. That's what Paul's doing right up until the day of his death. Remember, this is the capital of the empire. There would have been a huge crowd of people that would have been at his trial. And Paul, again, would have used the opportunity to clearly expound his message and at the same time make his defense that he was not a threat to the Roman Empire. Paul was not trying to stir up, for example, and free all the slaves. And he was not, he taught to be subject to the governing authorities. He was not a subvert, subversive. But he also knew that he had to obey God rather than men, and he was going to proclaim the gospel. That in itself got him in plenty of trouble. His defense, though, allowed him to escape immediate condemnation and he was put back in prison until a later date. That's what he means when he says he escaped the mouth of the lion. Now, there's a couple of possibilities, several possibilities as to what that means exactly. One, it could have been literal lions. I mean, they did throw Christians to the lions at different points. could have been a reference to Nero as the one, no doubt, that wanted Paul dead as much as anybody. It could have been a reference to Satan himself. Sometimes Satan is compared to a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. But I think the proverb is really just talking about the fact that he escaped danger. He escaped being put to death temporarily. Paul knows, again, that he's going to die. He knows that ultimately the only way that he's going to escape the evil works of his enemies is through death. And Paul, at this point, is not expecting deliverance from death. He's expecting deliverance through death. That's what he means when he says, the Lord will deliver me from every evil deed and will bring me safely to his heavenly kingdom. He's speaking about the completion of his salvation through glorification. And as he thinks about that, picture this now, he's in the worst environment he could be in. The place is dark, it's wet, it stinks, and yet when he thinks about the possibility of seeing the Lord soon, he turns to praising God. To him be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Well, that concludes, for the most part, Paul's request and his instructions to Timothy. We'll see he has a couple more in the verses that follow, but verses 19 through 21 are largely salutations to friends and colleagues in the ministry. He says in verse 19, Greet Prisca and Aquila in the household of Vanessa Forrest. Remember, Prisca and Aquila is also Priscilla and Aquila, although Paul also always calls her by the uh, kind of nickname Prisca and always lists her name first when he refers to that couple. 
They had come to Rome from Corinth, and Paul had worked with them there in their common trade of tent making. They later traveled with Paul to Ephesus. It was there that they took Apollos in and instructed him more accurately in the way of God, it says in Acts chapter 18. They must have returned to Rome at some point because Paul sends them greetings from his letter to the Romans in Romans 16.3. Now they're back in Ephesus, and Paul makes it a point to greet them there. They were trusted and close friends. Onesiphorus was mentioned back in chapter 1 of two of Second uh, Timothy as one who often refreshed the Apostle Paul and was not ashamed of his chains. His family would have been back in Ephesus, and Paul wants to make special note or take special note to give them his greetings because of their recent ministry to him through Onesiphorus. Verse 20 says, Erastus remained at Corinth, but Trophimus I left sick at Miletus. Erastus is mentioned in Acts 19.22 as another co-worker. Paul had sent him and Timothy into Macedonia while he returned, or while he remained in Asia. Trophimus was a native of Ephesus and was the man whom the Jews saw with Paul in Jerusalem and thought that Paul had brought into the temple. It's interesting to note that Paul says he left him sick at Miletus. Uh, proves, I think, or demonstrates a couple of things. One, Paul didn't just heal, pe- heal people willy-nilly whenever he wanted to. There was a particular purpose, and there was control by the Spirit of God as to when he performed miracles for a particular purpose. I think the other thing that it indicates is that these sign gifts were passing off the scene as the church became established, as the Word of God was being inscripturated in the New Testament. There was less need for signs to authenticate the apostles. Verse 21, make every effort to come before winter. Eubulus greets you, also Pudens and Linus and Claudia and all the brethren. Again, you can see that same request that we started off tonight with. He wants Timothy to come. He wants him to come as soon as possible. During the wintertime, navigation on the Mediterranean basically shut down. It was too dangerous to sail. Paul knows that Timothy is going to have to sail to get to him. And he wants to make sure he gets there before winter. He sends greetings from four people at Rome. Eubulus, Pudens, Linus, and Claudia. These are all new names. They're only mentioned here in the New Testament. Three of them are male. Claudia is female. And we really have no other information about them. But they were evidently Christians in Rome that Paul had come into contact with, even during his imprisonment, probably through Luke. And Paul... And they had asked him to send along their greetings to Timothy and to the others at Ephesus, along with other Christian brethren that Paul must have had contact with through Luke there in Rome. That brings us to Paul's closing benediction in verse 22. He writes simply, The Lord be with your spirit, grace be with you. That's a, a, a wish and a greeting that we see in a number of Paul's letters. And they may have well been Paul's final words to Timothy. We don't know if Paul, if Timothy ever got to Paul during this last imprisonment before he was executed. We do know that Paul was executed by the Roman Empire in about 67 AD. And I want to read you an account uh, from a work that I found very helpful and enjoyed very much. It's called The Life and Epistles of the Apostle Paul. It's written by two British commentators, Coney Bear and Housen. One of the things that they do in this book is 
they basically trace the Apostle Paul as he's making his missionary journeys in the book of Acts. And then as he gets to a particular point and writes a letter, they deal with that letter and its contents. And they do a great job of establishing the historical background of what was going on at that time in the Roman Empire, the purpose of the letter. It really just opens up uh, much of what Paul has written in his letters. What they do in this case is describe what it would have been like when Paul was executed by the Roman Empire. Now, we don't have that recorded for us in Scripture, but they do a great job of setting the scene. They use some words that I, and language, very descriptive. I'm going to try to read it and do it justice. But for me, as I read this, it really just kind of took me back to that day that Paul was executed and to the significance of that day. So I'm just going to read some excerpts of this. The privileges of Roman citizenship exempted Paul from the ignominious death of lingering torture, which had been lately inflicted on so many of his brethren. He was to die by decapitation, and he was led out to execution beyond the city walls upon the road to Ostia, the port of Rome. As the martyr and his executioners passed on, their way was crowded with a motley multitude of goers and comers between the metropolis and its harbor, merchants hastening to superintend the unloading of their cargoes, sailors eager to squander the profits of their last voyage and the dissipations of the capital, officials of the government charged with the administration of the provisions of the command of the legions on the Euphrates or on the Rhine, Chaldean astrologers, Phrygian eunuchs, dancing girls from Syria with their painted turbans, mendicant priests from Egypt, howling for, for Os- Osiris, which would have been one of the Egyptian gods. Greek adventurers eager to coin their national cunning into Roman gold. Representatives of the avarice and ambition, the fraud and lust, the superstition and intelligence of the imperial world. Through the dust and tumult of that busy throng, the small troop of soldiers threaded their way silently under the bright sky of an Italian midsummer. They were marching, though they knew it not, in a procession more truly triumphal than any had ever followed in the train of general or emperor uh, along the sacred way. Their prisoner, now at last and forever delivered from his captivity, rejoiced to fall his lord without the gate. The place of execution was not far distant, and there the sword of the headman ended his long course of sufferings and released that historic soul, that heroic soul, from that feeble body. Weeping friends took up his corpse and carried it for burial to those subterranean labyrinths where, through many ages of oppression, the persecuted church found refuge for the living and sepulchres for the dead. Thus died the apostle, the prophet, and the martyr, bequeathing to the church in her government and her discipline the legacy of his apostolic labors, leaving his prophetic words to be her living oracles, pouring forth his blood to be the seed of a thousand martyrdoms. Thenceforth, amongst the glorious company of the noble army of martyrs, I'm sorry, thenceforth amongst the glorious company of the apostles, among the goodly fellowship of the prophets, among the noble army of martyrs, His name has stood preeminent. And wheresoever the Holy Church throughout all the world doth acknowledge God, there 
Paul of Tarsus is revered as the great teacher of a universal redemption and a Catholic religion, the herald of glad tidings to all mankind. Let's pray together. Father, we are so grateful for the Apostle Paul. We're thankful for just the way that you used him, we recognize that you chose him as one who had a background as a Hebrew of Hebrews who knew your plan from the Old Testament. You chose him as an enemy initially of Christ and demonstrate him to be a trophy of your grace, reconciled him as the chief of sinners, and then you used him and gave him revelation about Christ, about the church, about salvation and made him the apostle to the Gentiles. We all owe such a great debt to the apostle Paul. We're thankful that he did work hard to the very end, knowing that his reward in heaven was secure. And Lord, I just pray that that would be an inspiration to us. Most of us will never face what the apostle Paul had to face, and yet the principles are there. The situation is the same in that we will face opposition We will face persecution as believers. Help us to be faithful, to respond to it in the same way that Paul did, to be forgiving of those even who might desert us, who might stand against us, who might fail us. And yet help us too to be faithful to the very end, to love you with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength, and to look continually to Christ and to the reward that you have for us in heaven as a means of sustaining us even through difficult times in this life. Thank you for the time that we've had in this study, Father, for this portion of your word. We pray in Christ's name.